0: Welcome to CFO Insights, the leading podcast for finance professionals in disruptive tech, brought to you by the Startup CFO community. I'm Guy Hutchinson and I'm your host. We've developed this podcast to bring to life the topics that CFOs need to grapple with and shine a spotlight on some of the elements that can help accelerate any innovative business. We're home to a wide range of finance professionals. So if you're not already a member, just search Startup CFO and apply to join. to another CFO Insights podcast. I'm Guy Hutchinson, and I'm your host and one of the founders of Startup CFO. Uh, We're always really pleased to be here on the podcast talking to some people with great CFO careers, and I'm really delighted to have uh, one of our members based out of the US, Jenny Bloom, formerly CFO of Zapier and MailChimp. Welcome, Jenny.
1: Thanks, Guy. It's a pleasure being here. I can't wait to talk to you.
0: Yeah, well, you know, we've always had a very broad church here at Startup CFO and had members from all over the world, although originally it's a group based out of London. And I, I think you were one of our first US members.
1: I think I may be. I think it's been almost three years.
0: Yeah, it must have been, it must have been. But um, I, I don't, I don't recall what what the trigger was for when we first started to get a bit of traction in the states but um but obviously with your background with two kind of major brands in us tech we were delighted to have you in and uh you know it's it's a great group we have i think more than 200 conversations in slack every week now uh, 900 members overall and when we have somebody with your depth of experience and sort of literally two decades in amazing tech startups it really adds something
1: yeah, thanks. I was I was actually excited to join the group because Zapier was really expanding in Europe. So I was looking for, you know, people to talk to over there to learn more about, you know, how things are done in in Europe.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and actually that that that's quite common, right? We often find that some of the most active members are members where obviously their finance career is important, but they're also interested in the product and how the product might have certain challenges when it's in new markets or or new verticals even that overlaps between like how do i understand this new market i'm going into between what your business is doing and what you're doing as a finance leader is always really interesting and yeah. um, you know one of the great joys of having a, having a conversation with somebody like yourself jenny is to really unpick the building blocks we've got a lot of what i would describe as members who are really rapidly ascending into their finance director role or their CFO role. Uh, They probably have a fraction of the kind of experience that you have. And it's good to reflect on how you build your career and, you know, what those building blocks are when you're laying your foundations. And you you had around about a decade in a couple of corporate businesses uh, prior to really seeing your first tech ventures in the late 90s. What, what for you were those key learnings? What 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 things did you assemble in that time that, that really put you in good stead later on?
1: So, yeah. So after um, I graduated from college, you know, I worked like almost 12 years in accounting and finance roles in retail and hospitality. And the last six was at Sob Cars, which was a part of General Motors. So these are all like really big companies. They did things the way they've always done things. They didn't want to change anything. And it just... I just felt really stifled and I didn't enjoy what I was doing. So I thought that like accounting wasn't for me. So um, while I was at Saab, I decided to go back to school and got my MBA at night. And that really helped me think differently and I saw what was going on in tech and was really excited about that. So Yeah, amazing.
0: I, that, that 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 sounds like you needed to have this moment where perhaps there was a bit of frustration in a conventional corporate finance career at the same time that you're beginning to see some interesting things happen with the internet and those tech businesses but you've also got the MBA as a kind of trigger for kind of bigger more commercial things that you might be doing
1: yeah totally and I think you know some of the things I learned was you know like I always want to change things you know at these big companies and like I said they wanted to do things their own way so I think you know getting into the internet with everything moving fast and everybody really wanting to learn and do new things, you know, that's what I learned. It's like, you need to do, th- how to do things better and easier. And, you know, in a fast growing company, things are constantly changing and you have to change things like every six months to keep and automating to keep going. Cause otherwise you can't scale efficiently.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that, 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 that piece where the CFO is the agent of certain key changes in the business. That that's much less common in more established businesses. And the minute that you drop a really great CFO into a tech business, you often have that the person is seeing things that don't work or will, will break at scale, and is problem solving and really driving through change. And uh, it's one of the things that makes I think the tech CFO is really different.
1: Yeah, totally. And then I think you know the people side is really important. So not it's probably not the same now, but back then it felt like people weren't treated as well. And like some of the bigger companies, like I said, it was very structured. And you know I think I learned to like you should treat people the way you like to be treated. You know if people are treated like cogs in a wheel, that's what they're they're going to be. They're just going to come in and do their job and go home. Where it's like people are your biggest asset, so you like need to invest in them. You need to like create a culture where you know, a place where people are passionate about what they do and want to come to work. So I think that's what one of the things we did at MailChimp and Zapier is like, you know, we gave people the two tools they needed to be the most productive and provide them chances to learn and grow their skills and give them opportunities to like be the best they can be.
0: Yeah, absolutely agree. I mean, you know, if you look at even on the tech scene in London and the, the degree to which the, the really good early stage tech businesses are giving people budget for learning and development and growth. And we see some of those people, you know, often our members spending it you know, with us, with our courses. Um, you know, it's really encouraging that part of the culture of these tech businesses is to invest in your people and to allow them to have a lot of say over their, their personal career journey. What were the leading indicators for you as to, that, that that some of these businesses were going to be really huge and really important in in the global economy.
1: I don't know. I guess because a lot of them just like made your life easier. It's like you know, like Google, Fast. I remember watching the day they went public, and like I couldn't afford to buy the stock, and I wish I would have. Wow. Like a lot less then than what it is now, but I think you could just see how much easier. Like okay, you need information, you just Google it. It was like so much easier than you know, previously, how you had to try to find information.
0: Yeah, yeah, that, that that makes a huge amount of sense. I mean, when you think about it, if you can get your head around what the use case of the product is and can convince yourself that if you would be a great advocate for it and tell, tell all of your friends that they ought to be using it, then that that's kind of the validation, isn't it, really? Because you can see in your head that it really ought to have scale, and it's just a case as to whether it's going to be one of the winners. And in... In terms of picking winners, I, I think this is actually one of the topics that I'm surprised isn't talked about more in the startup CFO group. Which is when people are looking for a business to go and develop their career in and stay for two or ten years in. What what should a CFO do in terms of understanding what the potential of that business? With I mean, when when you were looking at Mailchimp, I think you were running your own accounting firm at the time, and and that that was your in there.
1: Is that right? Uh, So, actually, one of the startups I worked at in, what was it, like 99, um, is where I met the founders, Um, so I became friends with them, so they became one of my first clients when I started my accounting practice, and yes, I just started working out, they were actually a web design company, designing websites, and one of their customers um, was having problems with email, so they're like, oh, we'll build something for you, so they built this product, and then they had some other clients that, hey, we need help with email. So they let them use this product. And then they they kept on working on it. And then they kind of set it aside and still continued with their web design work. And then it was like 2006, 2007. They looked and they're like, we're working a lot of hours. And this other product over here is like doing really well and we don't even have to touch it. So yeah, they I remember when they came to my office and asked me, they're like, should we just close down this web design company and go to, you know, this email, this, what they called MailChimp at the time. And I was like, are you sure you want to do this? (laughs) You know, I was, I was wondering, it's like, is this really, you know, something that will really be big? And I didn't know that it would be big, but I thought, yeah, I mean, it's gonna, you know, I knew they were exhausted I knew it could you know, Well,
0: that, that's a remarkable story because actually it's two stories, isn't it? Because it's the story of the birthing of Mailchimp. But also in terms of that that era, that that mid-noughties era, it's also the birthing of SAS. because there were quite a lot of founders of the ilk that you formed a friendship with where they, they essentially had a development shop and they were selling their time or their team's time into other tech businesses. And to suddenly realize that something you've developed could just be licensed and produce revenue at probably some very nice margins. Right. Um, is a completely different model and and how did that conversation go right how how easily were were you and they persuaded that 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 MailChimp ought to be a separate business going off in its own path well
1: I mean they were pretty set on it I mean they were asking me for my advice and you know we were talking about do we you know what to do about funding and stuff and yeah I mean it was just like kind of like why not try it you know I mean like I said they were exhausted and like it, it It could, it was bringing in as much money as they were making, working a ton. So it's like, why not see what happens if they devote full time to this and and see what happens? And then, you know, we thought about funding and, you know, I don't think it it was, I know a lot of people were doing it at the time, but it's just like, we knew that you had to give up a lot of the company and they didn't really want to do that. And I'm not a big proponent of that either. So we just took out a 250, we were able to get a $250,000 line of credit.
0: Amazing. That is amazing. So in in Europe, we're having more of those conversations about the difference in the path where you don't need to have fairly early on sort of new equity investors to drive the growth, but but you've got enough traction from something that you've just built in your in your time that it could almost be self-funding with perhaps a loan or two to support it. I mean, how how
1: how much did that one decision shape the culture of MailChimp? Oh, it was, well, they were always very cost conservative. So I don't think it, it was just what was in their, you know, in their blood kind of. I mean, that's just the way they handled things. They were very cost conscious and so am I. So I think that's why it was a good fit for all of us.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, in terms of your, your, your cultural fit overall and um how you enjoyed being on the C-suite of that business, were there other cultural elements beyond their... Um, their funding strategy, their approach to cost and spend. I mean, were there other cultural aspects that you felt were absolutely critical in terms of it being a success?
1: I think it was, you know, all about the customer and, you know, it was about delighting the customer. And, you know, a lot of the silly things we did was, you know, to make someone smile like we put up billboards. I'm not sure if we had any in Europe, but we definitely had quite a few in the US, With which was just a chimp smiling at you outside office buildings or stuff. So. We just did stuff to delight the customer and the customer was our most important thing so i think that was really important was about the customer versus the business a lot of times
0: yeah that's an amazing story isn't it because uh, i think sometimes people forget about part of the, the psychology of sales and retention is that people have to love what you offer but the things that that make human beings love what you offer are not always logical they're often very sort of fun or really? quirky things just something about the user experience uh, I, I i don't remember the monkey but uh um or at least not not the billboards but yeah i can i can imagine that 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 really resonating i mean in in terms of your most recent tech, tech business actually zapier were there were there other things that they've done that were a key part of their culture
1: well, our values were really important. So, you know, a lot of places you have values, but they're kind of on a wall and no one really talks about them. Where at Zapier, we constantly talked about them. we interviewed four of them. I mean, everybody knew our values and we would, you know, call them, call people out in Slack and saying, Hey, you did a good job of defaulting to action or, you know, being humble. So like we. Yeah, people knew the values. And I think that's really important for the culture.
0: Yeah, and that sounds like people knew them so well that they'd play them back in real situations. Yeah, you might refer to those because I, I think that's you know, as you said, that that's the difference from it being an ambition for the business and maybe written on the wall somewhere, for it otherwise being really deep in how people operate and people being able to reflect on those things as part of their working day. Uh, it's very powerful if you know if you can reach that point. Yeah, it sounds sounds, sounds like it was an amazing experience. But going back to the role you had as CFO at MailChimp in the noughties, one of the things we're hearing from members all the time is about growth. It's about, you know, they're perhaps CFO in a tech business doing two times, three times last year's revenue number and really having to grow the finance team and continue to adapt and change their financial processes to cope. How was
1: that at MailChimp? Yeah, so one thing that was um, I was lucky about is because MailChimp was self-funded. So I know a lot of CFOs spend a lot of time you know, going out fundraising. So that was one thing that I didn't have on my plate, which was very nice. So I did all the accounting and finance work myself till around 80 people. And then I hired an accounting manager and then a couple of accountants around 150 employees. I feel like the scaling of the accounting team is more employee related and complexity versus revenue. Because it usually has to do with yeah, because employees cause more reimbursements, cause more, you know, more transactions, and then you have complexities of additional entities or stuff. That's what causes the accounting team to grow. Yeah, that makes sense because
0: yeah, it's it's driving AP, it's driving uh, perhaps a bit more compliance with things like payroll and local taxation, things like this. Yeah, for sure. And did you feel that because you presumably had board seats to fill? but you didn't have the venture capitalists or the private equity people filling those those roles to serve their own interests. How, how was the dynamic at MailChimp in terms of making sure you had the right advisors in the room to steer the company?
1: Uh, we didn't have a board. So it was, you know, we had two founders and then for a long time, it was just myself and the COO. So it was really just four of us that was basically guiding the company. Wow. And, and like at the time, did that feel like, that
0: was a strategic advantage because sometimes it can be because you can stay really nimble but sometimes you can perhaps not have enough external counterbalance on some of the bigger decisions
1: yeah i think it allowed us to do things that boards wouldn't allow you to do or you know wouldn't think of doing it's like we would brainstorm a lot it's like you know like i would come into the room it's like okay here's the numbers we got this extra profit, we can get taxed on or we can use it, it's like, let's use it, what can we do? And one time we came up with, you know, giving away a million dollars worth of t-shirts, which sounds crazy, but yet what we asked people to do was to take a picture of themselves. And at the time, Facebook and Twitter were just kind of starting. So posted on Facebook or Twitter and it kind of went viral. So that was a big thing we did. And then another time was, you know, I listened to all the constant contact was one of our biggest, well, was our biggest competitor. And so I would listen, they were public. So I listened to all their quarterly earnings calls and, you know, they were spending a ton of money on radio and TV and it's like, okay, we can't afford TV and we can barely afford radio. Cause this was like 2012 and we were doing okay, but still, you know, we still didn't have a ton of money. And so, you know, went into the executive team. It's like, okay, what can we do? It's like, we need to do radio, but we can't really afford it. So what else can we do? And someone came up with, there's this new thing called podcast. So it's like, why don't we try that? And, you know, that led to, we start out with This American Life. And then, you know, a few years later, that led to Serial, which was a huge revenue boost for MailChimp.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. So I, I personally missed out on the first kind of spike in interest in a podcast. So actually coming to it almost a decade later, like <laughs> I missed out on this on the first time. It was huge. So second time round, I'm gonna have to really make make something interesting of it. But I must admit, your your story, Jenny, is really interesting because essentially what you're saying is the business grew pretty big. The the executive team that that were running it stayed really small and and that became actually a huge benefit for how mailchimp panned out that you were nimble and you could react quickly and you were often testing new things not 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 knowing that they will work but you were prepared to give them a try and to see if you could find a way to leverage that growth
1: yeah i mean of course you know you never know what another advisor could provide and other assistance so yeah i'm sure there, there could have been help from somebody else but yeah i feel like what we did with our. Was very yeah. It was very helpful what we did, and yeah, it was fun.
0: Yeah, yeah, amazing story. I love it. Uh, really, really interesting. And uh, there weren't there weren't an, a huge number of success stories in that time window that, that that were not the most obvious candidates, like you know Facebook and LinkedIn and things. So uh, really interesting time to be out there building a business, and amazing that you did it with uh, yourself and just you know really small team. Uh, but, but moving on to um, how how your career has progressed generally, you know, it it, it it occurs to me when I think about the things you've done that, you know, you you obviously have, either consciously or subconsciously, some methodology to picking businesses because you picked in MailChimp and Zapier, two great businesses that have been hugely successful. Thinking about how other CFOs might think about developing their career, are there any sort of tips or advice that you might have about how to identify a great business of the future.
1: Well, I don't want—I <laughs> don't want to say I actually picked them. So that's, uh, yeah, I've had people ask me that I really did pick them. Like I said, I mean Mailchimp, I you know kind of fell into with it being, um, you know, they were my client and I grew with them. I actually left them in 2016 and was looking for, just trying to figure out what to do. I was tired and just you know wanted to try to take some time off and figure out what to do with my life. And I had gotten to know Wade, the CEO of Zapier, a couple of years before because they were, you know, they were a big integrator with Mailchimp. So I just got to know him. And out of the blue, on the fourth day I'm off, he contacted me and said, "Hey, I'm looking for a finance operations person. I'm not really sh- sure what." He's like, "Can you give me some advice?" And so we started talking and stuff. And I'm like not really, I don't want to work yet and I don't know what I want to do. And so tried to get, give some of my friends to him and they were like, we don't want to go for a remote company. Cause Zapier was hundred percent remote from the beginning. And that scared people at the time and actually even scared me a little. And we kept talking and then he asked me they have, uh, we have retreats twice a year. And so there was a retreat, not far from where I live. So he, Wade was like, why don't you come and join us? And at the time it was about 25 people and i just fell in love with the team it was just a bunch of super smart passionate people and yeah i thought the product i thought the product you know could go somewhere i thought it was helpful and really could do something so yeah that was six years ago
0: yeah fantastic
1: so really if you
0: play that back so there's 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 a bit of understanding the product and seeing that it obviously has potential I think there's quite a bit of like maybe subconscious networking where just just doing your job, you you are networking a bit and building relationships with people, and then those relationships later pay back when they when they think of you and look for you to advise them on this important hire that 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 maybe you end up filling.
1: Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> it just kind of happened. Yeah, they both just kind of happened. But yeah, I guess you're right. It it that's true. There is something there.
0: There there is some methodology there somewhere in the fog i think but uh um, but i mean like like you know really impressive and and uh i am intrigued and i hope you don't mind because I, th- I think it's quite quite the question of the time here in 2022 more and more companies at least in europe have gone remote first and are sort of entirely or partly remote and so zapier were really blazing a trail before that was a thing to go and do what would you say if you if you had like one or two points of advice for businesses taking that journey that would come out of your experience what what things would you ought you to be thinking about in order to really make that fly?
1: Yeah, I don't honestly, I don't think I could ever work in an office again. I, I think remote is the way to go. Yeah, I think the, you have to build it from the start. And everything you do has to be very intentional. So like spending time with my, my directs, you know, in an office setting, you'd have a meeting, but you, you know, other things would be going on, you might not pay as much attention. And because you knew that you could meet with them afterwards, right? Or you could see them down the hall. So you might not be as organized when talking to them where in the remote environment, you have this certain amount of time with somebody. And so you're focused on them, you have an agenda, you make sure everyone's expect. you know, they know what they have to do. They know their expectations so that when they go away, they'll get the work done. So next time you talk, you know, it'll be done or they'll have the questions they need to finish it. So yeah, I think it's about being intentional
0: yeah, it's really interesting. that approach to things where you don't allow all of those sort of accidental information exchanges that, that you know will happen when you see somebody at the water cooler or whatever it is, you you accept that 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 there will not be those moments. And so things need to be very pre-planned, very intentional, as you say. Are there are there sort of strategies that you need to deploy in order to sort of transition to that way of working? Because probably a lot of people are just used to work in a certain way and they're perhaps not not looking to make that change are there any tips as to how people can can start to apply that that type of intentional thinking
1: yeah i mean i think i mean i said a lot of it starts at the beginning i think you have to write a lot i mean i think because it's also we have people in like 18 time zones so you have to really write a lot and you have to really keep i think it's really important to have information transparent so we use slack was basically our office and Every, you know, there was very few closed channels. It was only for like the exact team or you know, some HR stuff, but everything else was public. So people could see what was going on and they could they knew what to work on or what what to do when the you know other people were sleeping. So I think being transparent is, is super important also. Yeah.
0: Um, How did you find uh ensuring that everybody achieved the same level in written communications? Because like that that's not easy. And I know plenty of finance people who great with the numbers but they don't really want to have to put everything in writing they don't really want to go with sentences with everything but of course if you are global and remote you you are going to have to do that either through slack or through email i mean had had you had any experiences of getting everybody up to the same level as to how they communicate
1: yeah so i actually became a much better writer (laughs) um so i think a couple things with that so first of all everybody had to do customer support for it started out like four hours a week so there was tone and you know you learned how to write the messages so I think that was one thing that really helped and then the second and then later on we actually developed a a class of how to write so it's like how to be concise how to not use like different words and to be clear and concise so people understand it and it's quick and you know there's no excess language where people are wasting time on.
0: Those are important
1: skills. And actually, I think, Jenny, you're the
0: first person to tell me that they were in a tech company that formally supported high quality writing. And that's kind of amazing that I think it's the first time I've heard of it because it just makes so much sense.
1: Yeah, we uh, I think I can't remember the name of the book I read. It was I think it's oh, it's called Writing Without Bullshit. And that's that's the book that I made all my employees read.
0: Okay, I'm going to seek that one out, writing without bullshit, hunting it down. Brilliant. Uh, So, I mean, like, you've obviously had a tremendous career, and you finished up with Zapier after quite a number of years, right at the start of 2022, and now you are doing some board advisory work, I think.
1: I'm looking for some board advisory work. So, yeah, during COVID, my mom came to live with me and made me realize she couldn't, like, live on her own anymore and needed more care, so... I, you know, tried to care for her, but working full time as a CFO uh, was a little too much. So that's why I decided to retire. But I still want to be involved, and you know, I want to share what I've learned. So yeah, I'm looking to do, run a couple of board roles, and right now I'm doing some fractional CFO work for a couple companies, and trying to, you know, keep my hours around 20 to 25 hours a week.
0: That makes sense, and 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 that that transition that you've just talked through, where people have things going on in their family life and they choose to look at either some advisory work or some portfolio CFO work and really use that as a way to be able to support people around them. We, we actually see that in the group all the time. So in the startup CFO group, I'm very often approached by somebody who's probably, I, I mean, maybe for slightly different reasons, they, they perhaps have their first baby mm-hmm. and uh, they're wanting to go back to work, but they don't want to go back to the intensity of a typical VC backed startup. And they want to be able to set some boundaries about how many hours they work a little bit like you've just described jenny and they they often ask me about working portfolio because i've done that for six or seven years now and i give them advice on how to transition their uh, career and it sounds like you are having a similar experience where you've got you know family commitments that you seek to support and you're looking to um still still work on things that you love but to use that usual time in a more uh structured manner so you can strike a balance
1: yeah, absolutely. And, it's, and I'm finding there's, yeah, a lot of work and stuff out there. So yeah, it's great. It's exciting.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Jenny, I have to say, I'm just just so pleased to get you on the podcast. We had chatted, I think, maybe twice before, and just, just going through your career in some detail and just picking some of the really salient stories from uh, things that happened five years ago or 15 years ago that are just so relevant now with you know, the world coming out of the pandemic, essentially, in some shape or form, and a lot of businesses being being remote and having to kind of break down sort of challenges in culture. Just, just so interesting to chat. Thank you very much for agreeing to come. I'm sure there'll be many people that hear us have this conversation on the podcast and probably have some really interesting board advisory stuff going on. Who knows?
1: Yeah, this has been fun. Thanks so much, Guy. I really enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, it's been fantastic to have you on. Thank you for listening to today's episode that was brought to you by Startup CFO. We offer a wide range of programs to support the careers of CFOs working in tech. Our Mastermind Coaching and Exit Masterclass courses are leading the way for tech CFOs looking to accelerate their career development. If you think you qualify to join our group, click apply on our website, startupcfo.tech.